Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We just love the idea that the world can be controlled, that the world can be defined. It can be planned. Um, and, and of course, to some extent it can be. Um, but then the question is when it doesn't work like that, when the plan changes, when you have to adjust or adapt, um, are you ready? And and what are you going to do? And how are you going to adapt? And messy, I think, is an exploration of of different ways that people respond to these failures of the world to conform to the nice little boxes that we've we tried to put it into. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tim, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it is my pleasure. So I actually found out about your work because I read your book, Messy, and uh, absolutely loved it. I thought it was highly relevant to creative people. I thought, yeah, there's just so much valuable insight in here uh, for anybody who is is either a knowledge worker or creative, or for that matter, anybody who is living in you know this day and age. But before we get into all of that, uh, just based on the book and based on your background, in my mind, I kind of see you as a combination of a, a social scientist and economist. So I want to ask you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Well, I suppose two groups, the uh, the debaters and the the role players. So, so role-playing games, the most famous of which is Dungeons & Dragons, were a big part of my uh my activities my hobbies when i was at school and to be honest they still are um but the other thing that i did a lot of when i was at school was was public speaking and debating competitions and so mm. those those two things i think really defined my my social group I, i'm hard pressed to think of friends that i had that were not involved in in one of those two groups Mm. So, you know, I, I've always wondered about the, the subculture of people who play D&D because when I was growing up, it always just seemed like a bunch of, you know, weird nerds gathering yeah, yeah. who were out of touch with the rest of the world. And so I'm curious, what is it about 
the subculture of Dungeons and Dragons that draws people to it, that creates such a, a sort of loyal tribe uh, and such a sort of fervent fanatics about this? I think it's worth pointing out that the way that Dungeons and Dragons is played when you're, say, 12 years old is not necessarily the way that it's played when you're 47 year, years old. <laughs> I mean, I think you would make the same point for oh yeah, people who watch movies when they're 12 and watch movies when they're 47, or people who uh, go on dates when they're 12 and go on dates when they're 47. <laughs> it, it's just not the same thing, right? It's not the same yeah. thing. Um, and like dates and like movies, art, culture, uh, there's a lot of different things that you, you can do with it. But for me, the fundamental thing about role-playing games is it's a, a highly imaginative, highly collaborative process where creativity is taken absolutely as a given everybody involved in a role-playing game is creating maybe on a very small scale or maybe on a big scale and it's just assumed in in a way that um i think is not true of other subcultures so not not everybody who enjoys uh riding a motorbike could strip a motorbike down and put it back together again. Not everybody who enjoys playing with computers could build their own computer. And not everybody who enjoys watching Marvel movies goes home and says, I'm going to write a script for a, for a movie or I'm going to draw my own comic. But pretty much everybody who plays Dungeons and Dragons uh, is is tinkering with the game, is messing around, is creating their own systems, their own modifications, their own scenarios. It's really just, it, it, it's so basic to the way you play. And I think that that's, you know, that's part of what I enjoy about it. Um, of course, the, I mean, the other thing is that you're, you're kind of having these exciting adventures, you know, much like reading an, an exciting book or watching a movie, um, but you're doing it with your friends and you're making decisions, decisions together. And so that's a pretty, a bonding experience as, as you know, any kind of adversity is a bit of a bonding experience. Now here, of course, the adversity is simulated, but I think it still works. Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, what I wonder, uh, just based on, on the fact that, you know, <laughs> the way I asked you the question makes me realize my own sort of, you know, perception of it is somewhat biased because all I know is just sort of what I experienced because I didn't play. Why do you think that people have the misperceptions that they do of the types of people who play Dungeons and Dragons? And, and you know, what are the misperceptions that people like me have? And what are the, the you know, stereotypes that you've seen defied? Well, I think it's perceived as being, you know, a very geeky, nerdy game. It's perceived as being kind of intellectual, not that cool, quite male, not many female players. That's the cliche. I think all of those things are changing. So, you know, and I speak as someone who's out of touch with the kind of the subculture. I still play a lot, but like, I don't know what the cutting edge of Dungeons and Dragons is these days, but um, the impression I get is it's way more inclusive, um, you know, lots more female players. Uh, it's it's cool in a, in as much as there are quite a lot of celebrities who say they play it and are proud to play it. I think people the people who spring to mind are. Um, Will Wheaton and Stephen Colbert, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, uh, Vin Diesel. Um, oh, wow. They're all they're all very. <laughs> I would have never guessed. Yeah, no, they love they love the game, and there and there are many others. Um, so I think I think the 
those perceptions are shifting. Um, actually, it's worth, I, I would encourage people listening to this, if they have a moment to go and listen to an episode of my podcast, Cautionary Tales, um, that is specifically about uh, an episode early on in the history of Dungeons and Dragons. And it's about a young man who went missing and uh, called Dallas Egbert and this huge moral panic around uh, why he had gone missing and what had happened to him and Dungeons and Dragons was blamed. And this was all in 1979. So this was a very new game. It was not very well understood. And I won't spoil the ending or what really happened, but one of the points that comes out is of the media struggling even to describe what this thing is. And it's very hand-wavy kind of term. So like, oh, it's a very, it's a bizarre and intellectual game, you know, they'd say. And it's just, this is just what happens when you've got something new and people don't know they don't know what it is and they don't understand it. And then they, they start fearing it. Um, so yeah, I would encourage people to, to check out cautionary tales. I think they, they might find, they might find that fun to listen to. Yeah. So you brought up overcoming adversity together, even in a virtual setting. And I wonder you know, for parents who are listening to this, what would you say to them about what the benefits are of these kinds of games for children later in their life? And, and what have been the benefits for you uh, from your D and D experience that have impacted your adult life. Well, I think that before we get to the benefits, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to play, and in a way, that should be enough. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's fun and it's it's safe and it's not fattening. And you know, the, of all the things that teenagers could be doing, you know, D and D's pretty safe, um, and it's and it's great fun. A friend of mine who runs games for his son who is 14 and his son's friends, he says now parents are just beyond happy that he's doing this because he they realize that this is a, a way for these young people to interact in a way they don't normally interact and to kind of solve problems together and so on. So, I mean, that, that's, I found, I had that conversation with him quite recently and found that interesting and striking because i don't i'm now trying to get my children involved but mostly i just play with other 40 year olds so um <laughs> but the but but oh so what are the other benefits so it it's there it's highly literary so there's a lot of reading these these rule books they're fat lots of small print and they inspire young people i think to go and read more um mm. it's quite mathematical I mean, the, famously the the early editions of Dungeons and Dragons had a bell curve on about page three, just explaining the probability distribution of where, what happens when you roll three dice uh, and the way they form a bell curve. That, that sort of geekiness is just right there. You very quickly just learning to add and subtract numbers very fast as a totally natural thing. Just a whole bunch of numbers, you just quickly add them all up. So you it's not advanced mathematics, but you get comfortable with, with maths. But I think most importantly, you are. Um, you are co cooperating together in this imagined world. So it's quite close to a team building exercise you know, that, that someone might do in an office away day. It's quite close to improvised theater. 
this idea of everyone building on everybody else uh, and trying to create something that no one person could do by himself or herself. So there's a lot going on there. And, and of course, yeah, if you're 12 years old, you're not reaching creative heights with right. this stuff. And a lot of it's just, oh, I hit the goblin with my sword and I'm going to roll a dice and I miss or I, you know, so I don't want to make grandiose claims for it. But I think it's a really, yeah. it's a really fun, creative, uh, generative way to spend time as a young person. Yeah, I I appreciate the the fact that you know you brought up fun because I, these days I think that yeah uh, you know and, and the way you said it and I, I appreciate that because I think often these days everything whether it's a kid in an activity or even an adult starting an online project there has to be some end in mind of oh I've got to do this in order to accomplish some goal and I think that we lose sight of the value of creativity when that happens. I think that's right, and it's really it's it's tough when when I think back to the. The last 15 months or so, the pandemic um, and my own experience, which has been, I think, fine compared to most people's experience. I think a lot of people have experienced a lot of fear and a lot of loss and economic insecurity and all of these things. And I feel I've been quite fortunate that I've been able to work in a safe way that still feels relevant. So I'm not complaining. Mm. But when I think about my experience, one of the things I think that, that I, I reflect on is the sense of always being on. You're just sitting at the same desk, working, and the feeling of guilt if you're not doing doing <laughs> I something. Can yeah, I think we can all relate. And, and and it's not just about the pandemic, right? But yeah. I think the pandemic has really. I hadn't realized how much I was reliant on. Oh, just making a date to go and see some friends or to, to go to the theater or to see a movie or something. I hadn't realized how much I was reliant on that to just stop me working. Uh, I had assumed that I probably would stop working at 7 p.m. anyway, mm -hmm. but it turns out not. Turns out I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it, it was a real lesson in learning to be more mindful and intentional about, oh no, you have to stop now and you have to go and do something that's fun. And actually mm -hmm. one of the things that I have been doing is every week playing uh, online via uh, Discord. So most people will know Discord is this sort of, a, it's like a, a chat, text, mm -hmm. audio. I, these days people talk about Clubhouse, but Discord was there long ago. Um, I've been playing role-playing games with friends from all over the country on Discord every Thursday night. And that's mm. been, you know, and they're expecting me at half past seven and I've got to stop work because I've got to join the game and I don't want to mm. let people down. It's been important. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. It's funny, my roommates and I build uh, Lego sets together, uh, you know, really big sort of expert level Lego sets that have thousands of pieces. And I, I've always found that that's such a great disconnect because I, I'm an avid snowboarder. And when the pandemic came around, my roommates said, like, all you do is sit around and read, write and work. And I said, you have to remember, this is not what my life was like. I used to take entire weeks off just to snowboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that break, it's so important. And uh, well, I mean, you must have had so many conversations about what we've what we learned from the pandemic yeah. but i think one of the one of the many lessons is just uh how much of what we did we did because it was a sort of habit and then when all the habits are disrupted i mean this gets into some themes from messy which we could discuss yeah, if I you like but when we'll when the there. habits are are disrupted uh you sometimes you find amazing things to do but in in any case you have to start thinking like oh i'm not just naturally cycling normally i cycle on on my commute well there's no commute so i'm not cycling so am i gonna 
be more deliberate about cycling. Uh, I can't, I can't go swimming. Uh, how am I going to get that exercise? And, and uh, yeah, I can't go and see friends. So how else am I going to get that social interaction? Just to be more thoughtful about all of this has been a, a real, uh, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really has been a learning experience, hasn't it? Yeah. So what has been the trajectory that leads you from being a kid who plays Dungeons and Dragons and is on the debate team to becoming a author, a, a journalist and an economist? Because that doesn't seem like a linear trajectory at all. Uh, it's not linear. Uh, I, I hesitate to even begin to answer the question because the answer could get very long. So let me try and be brief. Uh, I did philosophy, politics and economics uh, as a subject at university, meaning to major in philosophy and to drop economics, but I was persuaded to change my mind uh, and stick with economics. And the, the strange thing was, I really enjoyed eco economics, but I had always planned to, to drop it. And it's one of these things where sometimes you need someone to prod you and go, you are actually enjoying this, what you don't have to stick to your original plan. Um, so, so I qualified as an economist. I went, I taught economics at an Irish university for a year, went back to Oxford University to do a master's degree in economics. And while I was doing all this, um, got involved in scenario planning at Shell, a big oil company, which was, I had a love-hate relationship with that job because I wasn't crazy about oil companies, and I wasn't crazy about big corporations in general. But that job was so interesting, surrounded by such interesting people, just trying to peer into the future and integrate lots of different views of the world. And one of the people I met who had come in to help us think about technology was a science writer, a guy called David Badanis, who'd written a wonderful book about the history of E equals MC squared and all of the components of that equation, and all of the people who'd been involved in putting together Einstein's theory of relativity and making it all possible. And um, so by then I was probably about 26, and I remember having coffee with David and saying, you know, I, I really would love to write a book like that, only about economics, because I always loved my economics. It was always fascinating. Uh, and David, of course, just raised an eyebrow and grinned at me like I was an idiot, because it, it was that, yeah, yeah, you don't need any permission to write a book. You want to write a book? Go and write a book. So I spent years trying to write and, and publish this book, which eventually became The Undercover Economist, which uh, when I had finished the first draft, I didn't have an agent, I didn't have a publisher, I didn't have any reason to believe anybody would ever read it. Uh, I think we're, we're over a million and a half copies sold now. So people wow. read it. Um, but it did take, it did take several years to get from that f first draft through to actually on the shelves. There was a lot of iteration. Um, and while Undercover Economist was being redrafted and redrafted and redrafted, I first went to the Financial Times on a summer internship and then to the World Bank because the Financial Times said, we want to give you a job, but there's a hiring freeze. So I went to the World Bank because that seemed like an interesting place to go if you're an economist, and it was. Two years at the World Bank. All the while at the World Bank, submitting occasional pieces 
to the Financial Times because I had a very cool boss at the World Bank who said, if you want to moonlight and write for the Financial Times, that's fine by me. Just don't write about the World Bank. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a really, that's a very cool boss because he's basically taking all the downside risk in yeah. order to give me more opportunities. He's, he was a terrific boss. But I did things like I interviewed Steve Levitt, the author of Freakonomics, just before Freakonomics came out. I interviewed um, two Nobel Prize winning economists, Gary Becker and Thomas Schelling, all while I was working for the World Bank. Um, and then I finally published an undercover economist, came back to the UK, started working on the editorial board of the Financial Times. And that was 16 years ago. And since then, uh, eight more books, TV, TV series, several radio series, but all that, the, the rest of it is all much more connected. It makes more, more sense after that point. Because then it's like, yeah. okay, you're a, you're a geek who tells mm. stories about geek land. Uh, <laughs> you, you, know, you, talk about, you talk about statistics, you talk about behavioral economics, economics, um, mm. all of these ideas. And, and they're in the books, they're in the radio series, the podcasts, everything. But yeah, the yeah. first uh, 10 years when I was you know, slightly annoyed at an oil company or hanging out at the World Bank because you know, I'd been promised a job in journalism, but there wasn't a job, um, you know, that was all the preparation for, for actually doing what I eventually started to do, which was being a writer about nerdy subjects. Hmm. So as somebody who, who has written about behavioral economics, I, I wonder, why do you think that with no agent, no publisher, no audience, you persisted through writing this manuscript? And why is it that other people who have, you know, a much easier time, at least, you know, an abundance of opportunity at their fingertips, granted, a lot more competition, don't even try, even if they uh, say they want to? So it's a good question. It's a co I think the answer is complicated. I mean, I, I should say, I think I had an abundance of opportunity. There was plenty of opportunity. I, didn't, I mean, the fact that I didn't have a publisher or an agent didn't mean I didn't have any opportunity. I, I had a a decent job that I could uh, that I was able to scale down to four days a week instead of five days a week. Uh, I was really interested in the subject, and I didn't have any kids, and so there's plenty of free time to get some writing done. Um, so I had the opportunity, but um, I mean, I did love writing the book, and I do love writing books, and that helps. I guess you don't write nine books unless you like mm. writing books. Uh, it's like a, it's like 3D chess. You're trying to put together this complicated puzzle, all these different ways that you could put the story together. And I really, it's difficult, but it, it, it's really fun. Um, but I had a couple of very positive interactions with with certain friends. So first, there was David Badanis at the beginning, who said, you know, just do it, why not? And who, every time I would send him like ridiculous, like I'd sent him like 250 words. I've written the first 250 words, David, what do you think? And of course, all he would ever say is, it's great, keep going. Because <laughs> what, what do you say someone sends you a third of a page? <laughs> um, but, you know, that you're looking for validation. But I, another friend of mine, I remember saying to her, this book writing thing's really hard. And she's, she's another economist. <laughs> she, so she's another economist. And she, she said, this, only an economist could say this. She said, of course it's hard. If it was easy, everybody would already have done it. 
Uh, and I was like, oh, right. Yeah. It's supposed to be hard. That was the thing. Of course it's supposed to be hard. Uh, like you wouldn't, you know, train for the Olympics and then complain that it was hard to get the Olymp to the Olympics, right? Why we, or, or, or if we scale it back a bit, you wouldn't train to run a marathon and then say it's really hard to run a marathon. I mean, these things are supposed to be hard, right? That's one of the reasons why they're worth doing. Um, and I had, I had another friend who she was writing a book and we, we were sort of swapping some chapters and kind of very delicately edging around each other because it's a very sensitive thing to be talking about someone else's first manuscript. But at, at a certain point she said, you know, you've written one chapter and I think it's pretty good. And uh, I think you could probably just go and write the rest of the book really quickly if you wanted to. And at, mm -hmm. at that point, the floodgates opened. I'd spent a year on that first chapter. And then it was, it was a month per chapter after that. So I finished the book in another year. I remember working four days a week in an office job. So um, I wish I could write books that fast now. Uh, but those sorts of moments, people encouraging you, people reassuring you that the the way you're feeling about the book is, mm -hmm. you know, is what you might expect. People giving you permission to just you know, go off and, and write fast. All of that was, was really helpful. And yeah. uh, one more friend, I basically very, very nearly gave up in retrospect, you know, a couple of yards from the finish line when I'd had, you know, one final agent had got back to me and said, oh, you know, you should make this change and this change and this change. And I, and I'd said to a friend, I'm just done with it. I've got, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book about public speaking, actually, about debating. And this friend's was like, this agent is telling you, if you make these changes, he will represent you. How long do you think it's going to make the changes? And I was like, I don't know, two weeks. So you've been working on the book for three years and you're now going to give up at this point. And of course, it, it's obvious, but sometimes you need that that wisdom from the outside observer mm -hmm. to tell you what yeah. you should notice yourself. And of course, it's, two hours into that process of, of doing the revisions, I was like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> Why did I hesitate for a moment? But, you know, before I started, I just I felt a bit tired and, you know, I wanted something fresh. Yeah. It, it's funny you say that because I mean, the whole reason I ended up starting the podcast was because uh, yeah, I was in this online blogging course and one of the first people I interviewed was one of the, he's the 13th person I interviewed. And I remember emailing him saying, Hey, I want to start a multi-author blog. Will you contribute? And he emailed me back and he said, actually, no, he said, you're a pretty average writer, but he said, you're good at interviews. So I think you should actually focus on that and spin it out as a separate site. So I replied back an hour later with a mock-up of a website saying, hey, when do you want to get started? <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that was what he had in mind. But um, yeah, I mean, to this day, it, and it's funny because I've had the opportunity to write books to the publisher and, and uh, I, you know, I, I, he was one of my first calls. I said, apparently my publisher disagrees with you, but he was right. I am a far better interviewer than I am a writer. Uh, you know, like writing I do for myself, I feel like. It's it's not easy to get that kind of really direct, clear feedback. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a valuable gift he gave you there. Oh, um, I built a career off of it. So. Yeah. No, I'm sure you recognize it. But I just, we do, I think we do, uh, we struggle to seek out 
that sort of advice. I guess you never know who's going to give you that sort of advice. Um, We tend to look for much more sort of generic, reassuring comments. Like it's, Mm. it's going fine. Keep going. And those are, those are valuable comments sometimes, but Mm. uh, sometimes you need something much more crisp and incisive. Yeah. Less less of that, more of that. And, yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing I see with particularly with creative people, and it, it, this is a lesson I learned when I was writing my first book with a publisher, I had a writing coach, uh, is being able to separate feedback on you as a person from feedback on the work, because her feedback was always brutal. It was never, if you did anything good, the most you got was a good. And if it was lousy, it would be like lazy, try again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and by far, she was one of the best things that ever happened to me as a writer. And I, I think that it was, it took me a month, but I, I finally understood it. This is not you saying anything about me personally, you're doing the job I hired you to do. One of the privileges I think of, of writing long enough that you get to experience different editors is you start to realize that a lot of these comments are just a particular editor's style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some editors are very positive and some editors are not particularly positive. Um, some will give you a few, you know, quite general pointers like oh try try bringing section three further up and uh see if you can sharpen the conclusion or something like that and others will just do line by line they'll edit your your commas and you know and that's all valid as editorial input but Mm -hmm. as as a as a writer you you can't help or creative in general i think you can't help but but tends to take it personally and i think you're particularly vulnerable some people are very vulnerable their whole careers but i think you're particularly vulnerable early on because you haven't had so much of that creative feedback and and you yeah. you're going to tend to take it take it to heart uh, i'm quite struck by um i'm just reading a manuscript that a friend of mine has written and uh it's his it's his first book and he's I, I would say as a, as a sensitive soul and the book's great. It's really good. And I think it's going to be a very successful book, but um, he's clearly very tender. You know, you don't want to poke too much because he will, mm. it hurts him. And uh, I, I sent it one, one chapter he sent me, it, it was kind of on my specialist subject. So I sort of sent back a load of like quite detailed te- like check this out i think this is not quite right you need to look this up and sort of and uh he just sent me these long essays explaining why he'd made these decisions i'm like i don't need to read any of this stuff i'm just telling just telling you, <laughs> you you might want to check that definition but like if you're happy with what you've written you're that's fine like you don't need to explain yourself to me um, <laughs> but i see where he is he's sort of you know he's it feels like such a precious thing uh, and it is a mm. precious thing um mm. yeah but it, he's going to be fine because the book's going to come out and it's going to do really well. So, Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to getting into the concepts in Messy. So what made you want to write Messy of, of all the books that you could write? Uh, it was So Messy is, is a slightly messy book about all of the things that we find hard to pin down, predict, define, um, the joys of improvisation, the joys of the stuff that can't quite be measured or doesn't neatly fit into any category and you can see i'm already struggling to uh to to describe this book um Uh so which is actually i'm i'm now 
I, I just heard a, a wonderful interview with Ed Catmull, the creator of, of Pixar. And uh, he was saying that at least a third of Pixar movies needed to fail the elevator pitch. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a movie about a rat who wants to learn to cook. Um, like he, he, he was proud that a lot of these movies you couldn't really define. So I've made me feel better about Messi. But so Messi is this, as I say, it's this book about all of these things that are hard to pin down. And a lot of it is about, not all of it, but a lot of it is about the creative process and how our creativity responds to um, being forced to make things up on the spot or how it responds to disruption or how it um, responds to uh, creative friction or collaborative friction, working with people we don't want to work with. Originally, it, it was born of uh, an observation that's quite familiar, which is um, a lot of the interesting stuff happens at the intersections. So like you take two academic subjects, put them together, like the point where they meet is where the cool stuff's happening. That's quite a familiar observation. And I wanted to write about that and to write about why nevertheless it's difficult, like the structures that we build around, you know, bookstores have classifications and academic journals have classifications and academic departments have classifications. So I wanted to write about that tension. But as you will know, having read the book, there's not that much of of that subject left in the book. By the time I finished with it, it went all Mm. kinds of places and I had a lot of fun writing it. I really enjoyed writing it, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I it, there are so many things that struck me. I mean, I noticed patterns from my own creative work uh, that I observed that you wrote about in the book, and then I, 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 you know, observed things that people have you know said in contrast to what you've said in the book. So, one of the things you say at the opening of the book is that often we're so seduced by the blandishments of tidiness that we fail to appreciate the virtues of the messy, the untidy, unquantified, uncoordinated, improvised, imperfect, incoherent, crude, cluttered, random, ambiguous, vague, difficult, diverse, or even dirty. And I think the the reason that struck me so much is, you know, you mentioned here before we hit record that you'd heard somebody like Cal Newport uh, here on the show. We've had people who almost, you know, to some degree, preach the exact opposite of what you're saying yeah. uh, that has made them successful. Because I know you go on to talk about distractibility, which we will. Um, but why is it that we're so seduced by this? Because, you know, think about sort of the aspirational media that's created from people like David Allen all the way to people like Cal Newport, where yeah. there is this sort of rigid discipline sort of mindset involved in their message and, and how they are able to accomplish what they do. So, I mean, I have to say I'm a big fan of Cal and David, uh, and the, the uh, I think both of them would probably tell you it's not as easy as it seems. Like, so, so if you take, for example, Cal Newport's time block planning method, uh, mm. so he, when you hear about it, you're like, he, okay, what he does is he's like, he's got this, he's got the day's journal and it starts at 8am whatever and the time block planning method is you just write down what you're going to do at every moment in the day and then you do that uh, like that's the that's the, i think what a lot of people hear um actually if you talk to cal about it he or you read his stuff you listen to him he would say well no that's obviously that's not what's going to happen in your day you're you're going to have to tear up that plan two or three times maybe more uh, and, but the point is that you should keep 
stopping and thinking about where you are and being willing to make a new plan. You shouldn't just be sort of drifting around, making it up as you go along. So immediately we, you know, we start with this idea of, oh, there's this plan. I'm just going to make this plan for the day. And the guy who is, you know, the guru of time block planning is saying, no, 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 that's just like, that's just plan A. There'll be a plan B. There'll be a plan C. There'll be a plan D. But we don't want to hear that. We just like the idea of, of plan A. Um, and very often, I think we, uh, we just love the idea that the world can be controlled, that the world can be defined, it can be planned. Um, and, and of course, to some extent, it can be. Um, but then the question is, when it doesn't work like that, when the plan changes, when you have to adjust or adapt, um, are you ready? And, and what are you going to do? And how are you going to adapt? And messy, I think, is an exploration of, of different ways that people respond to these failures of the world to conform to the nice little boxes that we've we tried to put it into. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. 
Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I think that that's so common for young people, especially you grew up in the Indian culture. You know, you're kind of handed a life plan uh, when you're, you're, I think, probably 10 years old. It's like, hey, which of these three past doctor, lawyer, engineer is going to be your life plan? Uh, and I think that, you know, as you get older, you start to see that nothing almost goes according to plan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as I was saying earlier, the I nearly got stuck studying philosophy and politics and not economics, which is what I'm known for and what I love, um, because I had made a plan to drop economics. And the fact that new information came in and it was like, actually, this subject's great. It's really interesting. You never understood how interesting it was going to be. Um, mm -hmm. You're still going to stick to the plan. Uh, and you just, I needed somebody to, you know, to give me that sort of slap and say, hang on a minute, are you, are you sure you, that the that plan A still works. Um, it's it's surprising how I mean. There's a word for it. It's called plan continuation bias. You know, we just get this idea in our heads, and it can be really hard to take that step back and say, well, "Hang on, change course, change direction." Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you say uh, early on is that distractibility can indeed seem like an issue or even a curse, but that's if we're looking only at the hill change or hill climbing part of the creative process. Distractible brains can also be seen as brains that have an innate tendency to make those useful random leaps. And you actually talk about the benefits of, of working on multiple creative projects and in cross-fertilization, which we'll get to. But I think the, the thing that struck me most is that I think when people hear the idea of distractibility being good, they're like, oh, perfect. That's an excuse for me to go fuck off on Facebook for an hour. Uh, yeah. And I think that there's a difference between that kind of distractibility and the kind of distractibility that you're talking about here. So can you, you know, explain that distinction for people? So the, the particular concept that, and I'm an economist, I'm not a psychologist, but the, the particular concept in cognitive psychology to which I'm referring is something called low latent inhibition. And late, latent inhibition is basically the ability of, to tune stuff out. Um, and low latent inhibition is the, you know, you're having more difficulty. Say you're in a, you're at a party and you're trying to listen to what someone's saying to you. Can you focus on what they're saying to you? Or is the noise of the other conversations kind of distracting you? Um, if, if the noise of the other conversations is, is, is impinging on your, your ability to understand what's being said, that's low latent inhibition. And I feel, um, I'm, you know, I've never had it measured, but I feel that I, certainly have it at times. In particular, I find it very difficult to ignore TV. Uh, if I'm, you know, in a public space where there's a television, like a, a, an airport or a, you know, a bar or something, there's a TV on. I really find it hard not to look at the TV. Even though I don't like TV and I'm not interested in TV, it's just constantly pulling my attention away. Um, now, the Harvard psychologist, Shelley Carson, who studied low latent inhibition, this kind of particular type of distractibility. And what you found is that the Harvard undergraduates who had it, 
were vastly more likely to be serious creative overachievers and and by serious creative overachievers we're talking they ha- they already had an album out or a no- or had published a novel and they're still undergraduates uh that sort of thing um now of course there's a particular there's a sampling bias here right so like these people managed to get to harvard despite being having this what you might say we call it neurodiversity these days but you might say it's a kind of disability a disadvantage they still got to harvard they must have something going for them but for me it does make sense that i mean another way to to describe this is just to say these are people who keep noticing interesting stuff like they were constantly mm. noticing interesting stuff um yeah. so i i don't i don't know what to make of that but I, I just find it fascinating. And the one of the one of the people that I found most interesting while researching Messi was Brian Eno, who mm-hmm. is a visual artist, a, mu- a musical artist, a, a ambient music composer, a producer, a fascinating thinker. He's most famous for working on um, three of David Bowie's best albums. But he's worked with lots of other people like Coldplay and U2 and Twyla Tharp and Devo. And, but he, he finds the outside world extremely distracting. He can't go to a restaurant where there's music playing He just because he can't get his ears off the music. So if the music's playing in the restaurant, he can't, he can't have a conversation. So that's a disadvantage, right? Except, except you're Brian Eno. So maybe it isn't. <laughs> It's funny you say that because I I played the tuba for 12 or 13 years. And when I would study, the only kind of music I couldn't listen to was classical music because of the fact that I would not um, be able to listen to music. I would like literally be thinking about fingerings and measures and, you know, like the things that were involved in the tuba parts. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, right? It makes sense. Um, well, you talk about the, the, the benefits of working on multiple creative projects. And I think that, yeah, you, you say that these two leading creativity researchers, Howard Gruber and Sarah Davis argued that the tendency to work on multiple projects is so common among the most creative people that it should be regarded as standard practice, uh, because of this whole idea of cross fertilization. And you say the knowledge gained in one enterprise provides the key to unlock another. And I, I learned that firsthand about seven, eight years ago when we redesigned our entire website and rebranded. And I'd been teaching my how to draw for 30 days and i realized i can't draw for shit um but when it came time to redo the website and we got the first version i, I looked at it, i said this website sucks but i know what's wrong with it we need to have one of our friends custom illustrate all the icons and i don't yeah. think i would have figured that out if it hadn't been for the drawing uh but on the flip side of that i've seen a lot of people who are creative and and you know because creative people have no shortage of ideas the tendency I've noticed is that they'll go a thousand miles in a thousand directions as opposed to a thousand miles in one. So how do you find the balance between those two things while also working on multiple projects? Uh, it, it's, it's a risk, isn't it? Um, the, mm-hmm. I mean, the main stress I find with the multiple projects is uh, just the, the sort of sense that stuff is going to get lost. Like you're having all these ideas and you don't have time to finish them all off. So at that point, you just need some simple system. Uh, I, I talk about Twyla Tharp's famous system of boxes. I mean, it's so simple, it's not even a system, right? Except it works. And Twyla Tharp, she's a great choreographer. Her book, 
the creative habit is mm-hmm. should be required reading is wonderful book and but she says whenever she has something that she thinks might be a pro- project she just gets one of those big packing boxes uh you know about two feet by one foot by 18 inches you know the kind of cardboard box and and she just starts throwing stuff related to the project in it and it's a very simple way of just accumulating ideas and you don't need to think too hard you don't need to be thinking about fine details and categorizations you just it's it's just this placeholder that you can put stuff so that i think is an important part of it um i think the the i mean there is no hard and fast rule for how to stop just kind of never completing anything and always just chasing after the next thing i you know except to be aware of that that's a risk that at a certain point you have to what would seth godin say you have to ship right? <laughs> at a certain yeah. point you've got to you have to ship something you have to say okay i've finished the draft of my book and i'm now going to send it to an agent or i have uh, I have a body of photography work and I'm now going to try to find somewhere to exhibit it or um, not not constantly using the start of a new project as an excuse to to not finish the old project. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's a temptation and it's a risk, but I think it's a risk that um, almost every creative person you can think of, I think, has has it worked in this way of just having multiple things going on at the same time. It just seems to be absolutely standard. And occasionally you might say it's slightly dysfunctional. So, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci didn't finish a lot of stuff. On the other hand, uh, you paint the Mona Lisa. (laughs) How much? Nobody's going to notice what you didn't finish. How much more do you want? Right. Um, And actually, um, Another of my Cautionary Tales podcasts that I'm very proud of, quite recent, is about uh, Claude Shannon, who's a great mathematician, computer scientist, who just produced this amazing thunderbolts of insight. He was like Einstein, only for computer science. Um, He also spent an awful lot of time uh, pogoing around uh, Bell Labs. He, He taught himself to juggle upside down and to unicycle and to walk on a tightrope and then he set himself the task of unicycling upside down on a tightrope um and just all and you when you look at his life you go did he just spend too much time just endlessly messing around and never finishing anything maybe but then you then you look at what he achieved and you say well he he achieved more than anybody in, in, in many ways, these two great thunderbolts of insight, maybe that's enough. So, I mean, the whole, that whole cautionary tale is me wrestling with this dilemma that you've described of like, mm-hmm. how distractible is too, is, is too distractible. At what point do you say, actually you're wasting your potential, you're wasting your time. Um, yeah. but I, he was, he was absolutely one of the greats. And so, can you separate all the non the pogoing and everything? And and there's so much. It's it's funny how many dumb things he did. Like I mean, cute. There'd be there'd these there'd be YouTube maker projects these days. Like he made these mm-hmm. um 
these massive shoes out of polystyrene. You could actually go and walk. They were like canoes. You could walk on water in these enormous shoes. There's so, so much stupid stuff like that that he did. Can you separate it from his, you know, his amazing insights in computer science that completely turned the field upside down twice? I'm not sure you can. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me, we're watching this movie last night called uh, The Mitchells versus the Machines. It's a hilarious animated show uh, movie on Netflix. And the movie starts out with the young girl saying, I make weird art. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, people should make weird art. <laughs> yes, I, I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Um, you know, at a certain point, you want to be able to to call it finished and yeah. to put it on the wall or to to get it into a bookshop or, or, or whatever. But um, there, there will be a lot of noodling around, a lot of experimentation, a lot of projects that don't, don't ever quite make the cut. Mm. So um, you go into the, the chapter on collaboration, which I think the things, two things really struck me uh, because uh, you know they, they seem so obvious when you say them. You say, when our stream of social media updates fits tightly into our preconceptions, we're hardly likely to mess it up by seeking out the people who disagree. And the pattern repeats endlessly. We gain new choices about whom to listen to, whom to trust, and whom to befriend. And we use those new choices to tighten the circle around us to people who are more and more like us. So I, I wonder from, you know, two, two sort of points of view, as a journalist, does that, how do you see us ever solving that problem? Because, uh, you know, that's kind of what media is these days, particularly in the United States where our media is so sort of polarized and divided. Yeah. 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 Actually, you reading that section out, I think to myself, gosh, I mean, that's, that's become a very, very common lament in the five years since I wrote it. Um, how do we break out of that? Well, uh, one observation is that social media does at least give you a spread of views. So it, it does tend to polarize, but at the same time, it does tend to throw up random stuff. Um, and the random stuff can be worth pursuing. So my friend Tyler Cowan, who blogs at Marginal Revolution and uh, mm. has, a, has a wonderful uh, interview podcast. He advocates you know, doing quite deep cuts into Twitter. So he'll say he'll, he'll follow like Ethiopian politics Twitter or whatever. Um, you know, he'll find some people who are kind of really in, into Ethiopian politics and that every now and then he'll just kind of check his list of people he's following who are into Ethiopian politics or, or, or whatever it is. Um, so for me right now, epide um, you know, epidemiology Twitter, all the nerds who are talking about variants of concern and vaccine effectiveness and sort of following the latest trials, um, you can, I don't spend enough time on Twitter to make this worth my while, I think, but you can curate them into a list and you can say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to spend some time on epidemiology Twitter. I'm not going to just Twitter. Epidemiology Twitter is where I'm going to go. And once you're building lists with that sort of thing in mind, they will tend to, cr to cut across other areas of concern. Whereas if you're just sort of on Twitter in a general sense, a lot of it is just people shouting at each other about politics. And it, it tends to get into these political bubbles quite, quite easily. So that's one possible approach. 
I think another thing that's worth doing is to seek out uh, of just different media. I find blogs mm. still still interesting. Uh, yeah. I know they're they're quite two thousand and four, um, but a, you know if you follow some interesting bloggers, they will be alerting you to stuff that's not quite on the news cycle. That's not quite in the Twitter outrage cycle. Books books are good. And books, I mean, books can polarize too, but often a book, because a book is kind of slightly out of the loop, it, it gives you a more timeless perspective. It, they can't just be furious about whatever it was that that Trump said or whoever, mm. you know, because the book was written in 2012. You know, it's, it's, it's ancient now. Um, or you could be really radical and you could actually deliberately seek out people who see the world differently. This is quite hardcore. Um, and for politics, I think it gets very frustrating. But I think for other subjects, it's it's worth trying to do that. So as an economist to say, okay, I don't want to just follow the economists. I want to I want to follow the psychologists who think that economics maybe isn't so so realistic, and they'll give me just a different a different cut on things, a different perspective on things. Yeah. So let's uh, talk briefly about improvisation, uh, because I, I think the thing that there, there are two things in particular that struck me that you said about improvisation. You said perhaps the most important element in successful improvising is simply this being willing to take risks and to let go. That's much easier when you have little to lose. But even when there is a lot on the line, improvising can be your best way forward. And it kind of makes me think about, you know, even as a, as a creator or somebody who owns a business, how when you get to a certain level, you have a lot more to lose. So for example, now, you know, we've raised a round of venture funding. Uh, you know, I, I've written two books. So there are places where I have to draw a line where my own improvisation could cost me. And because and, to your point, I, I think that when there's no audience, you have nothing to lose. So it's easy to take huge, huge risks. And the paradox to me has always been, those are the very things that get you into the position that you're in when you do have something to lose. Yeah, yeah. It's a real dilemma. Uh, of course, you can improvise on a lot of different themes without actually taking that many risks. The, you know, the risk ends up being that you maybe don't deliver the performance you were hoping uh, versus you say something outrageous and you get cancelled. Um, I think as long as you're reasonably sensible, the, the risk of of that is fairly minimal. Um, there is, of course, a risk that you that you slightly underperform, but you can frame it in certain ways. I mean, when I think about Keith Jarrett, who as a as a musician is someone who fascinates me, part of the point of Keith Jarrett concerts is, uh, I mean, sadly he's he's ill; he doesn't play anymore. But um, the point of these Keith Jarrett concerts were he's he's just going to play whatever comes into his head. And you take that risk as an audience member, that's part of the excitement, like that you don't know what it's going to be. Um, and you might go and see improv comedy and the, you know that some of it's going to fall flat. And that's part of So sometimes it can just be a thing that you um, you present, like this is an improvised, this conversation is improvised, right? You didn't send me a list of questions. I didn't know what we were going to do. <laughs> well, funny, yeah. I, I was going to ask you about your next quote, right? When you said that. Yeah, I mean, so, so that's what... <laughs> You know, a, converse, a good conversation is improvised, right? Because otherwise, it's not a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, as I as I say in the book, um, but you can 
you can frame things in in as as an experiment as yeah. an improvised thing and people enjoy that and there's a certain amount of forgiveness for that too um and you can say you know if you're a performer you can say look this bit is is prepared and this bit is improvised and kind of you can take the best of both but yeah there's risk there is risk um there's um i i I know i've directed people to the cautionary tales podcast but there is one more um the first episode of of season two of cautionary tales revisits a story that's in messy about these two speakers gerald ratner and uh martin luther king uh you've of course heard of martin luther king you may or may not have heard of gerald ratner but um these two speeches they gave that completely defined their careers for better or worse and the role that improvisation played in those speeches and uh i don't want to spoil the surprise but people come up with a lot of assumptions about what was prepared and what was improvised. And when things went wrong, people blame the improvisation. And it turns out actually a lot of the stuff that went wrong, it it didn't, it wasn't because of the improvisation and a lot of stuff that went right. It wasn't because of the script. Mm. Well, it's funny you talk about the script because, and you mentioned my questions, you, and I think this is why this highlight struck me. You said a script can seem protective like a bulletproof vest. Sometimes it's like more like a straitjacket. Improvising unleashes creativity. It feels fresh and honest and personal. Above all, it turns a monologue into a conversation. And I literally thought to myself, yes, this is why I never will send anybody questions in advance. And if they ask for them, I say, yeah, here's the questions. Just know I'm probably not going to ask you any of them. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've never, I have done interviews where people have said, oh, here, you know, here are the questions we're going to ask. Um, I mean, it occasionally you can say, don't ask me that question because it's a technical question and I don't know the answer and I'm not going to do the homework. So you won't get a good answer. But, but I mean, for this sort of conversation, would we have been better off if you'd sent me the list of questions? Hell no. Quite apart from the fact that we'd have, we'd have been way off the list of questions after about four minutes, right? When, we went, yeah. when I went deep nerd, you know, that we, <laughs> straight into the Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about winning because um, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. It was this whole idea of the OODA framework, because there's one thing that you said. And uh, so you said, if you could disorient your opponent, forcing him to stop and figure out what's going on, you gain an advantage. And in my mind, I was like, wait a minute, I'm on this like steady losing streak on this NBA 2K video game with my roommate. I was like, how do I do that in a video game? So can you tell me how I would use observe, orient, decide and act to basically beat my roommate at this basketball game? Oh, I've got no idea. I don't don't know the game that you're talking about. And uh, yeah, no idea. Well, give me, give me the general principle behind it. So you see, don't, you don't send me the questions in advance. We've just established it. So the general principle, this um is this particular idea is very famous in a particular sub community and it was developed by a guy called john boyd who was a terrific fighter pilot in the 50s 60s uh and then became very influential as a um, bit of a maverick strategist and influenced people uh, such as dick cheney um and boyd's basic idea was that you're out on the battlefield and you're, you're just trying to, you're trying to, it's very, it seems very pedestrian. You're just trying to figure out what's going on, observe, orient, uh, 
Um, and then you have to decide what to do. Like you've assessed the situation and you have to decide what to do and then you have to act. And then it's a loop. So you have to go back to, and then you have to observe the results, figure out what to do and then act and so on and so on. That kind of seems pretty obvious. Boyd's point that becomes genius is the, the aim in, in a conflict situation should be to consistently observe, orient, decide, and act so fast that the situation's changed before your opponent can act. So your opponent is constantly observing, deciding, and they have to restart. Observe, decide, restart. Observe, decide, restart. And uh, you think, okay, that sounds kind of clever, but what, you know, give me an example. Well, an example is what Donald Trump did to Jeb Bush in the Republican primaries in 2016, which is that Trump would say something that everyone thought was a bit crazy. And Jeb Bush would withdraw to consult with his focus groups and come back about 36 hours later with some kind of response that had been very carefully triangulated, by which time Trump had just moved on to the next thing. So whatever Bush was doing was just hopelessly out of date. Um, and it was it was in, you know incredibly uh, effective. Uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, the same thing, very calculated. Early on in Amazon, he was consistently making decisions that his own staff were saying, "We can't do this. It's going to be kind of a mess. We start. We're going to start shipping knives, but like our system is designed to. The only categories in the system are hardback or paperback." And like now you're going to sell kitchenware. Like how can we how can we do this? And he was very much of the mind that look, we are going to be crushed by Barnes and Noble, big um, book retailer, and then we're going to be crushed by Toys R Us, and then we're going to be crushed by Walmart, whatever. And the only the only way we're going to avoid being crushed is they're slow, and if we move fast enough, they'll never catch up. Mm. Uh, and if we're constantly taking risks, overworking our staff. Uh, the fact that our warehouses are snarling up, well, that's just going that is the price we have to pay in order to stay ahead of the, of the OODA loop of our enemies. I also describe a World War II general who did this very effectively as well, but in a more, much more literal sense. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's just that being willingness to, being willing to say, I will make an imperfect decision now because um, it will force an even more imperfect decision from my opponent. And the aim here is to win, uh, not yeah. to produce the perfect decision. It's funny because as silly as it sounds, like I'm thinking about this video game that we play, it's a, it's a basketball video game. And I'm thinking, oh, I could just pass and pass and pass until we're like 10 seconds left in the shot clock to drive him crazy. Yeah, I mean, there are ways. I mean, Magnus Carlsen, the chess player, um, is very good at making moves uh, just as there's time pressure. Um, and you can see when you get computers to kind of analyze these, these moves, um, you can see his opponent, the, the quality of both players falls under the time pressure, but um, the quality of Magnus's opponent's moves falls further than his. So he kind of manages to basically turn the chess match into a street fight uh, where he's 
you know, he's better able to to land the punches than his opponent. I mean, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure Magnus would recognize the description of what it, what I'm saying, but these it, it is fundamentally this understanding that if I'm ten percent, if I'm performing ten percent worse, whether we're talking about a boxing match, a a debate, um, presidential primary, a war, a chess match, whatever, if I'm performing ten percent worse but I can get my opponents to perform 30% worse, then I'm ahead because it's a zero-sum mm. game. Um, that's the basic insight from that chapter of Messi. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up by, by talking about incentives and then um, you had a, a really great sort of nugget on, on life in general at the very end. You said the trouble is that when we start quantifying and measuring the world, we soon begin to change the world to fit the way we measure it. And I, I can't help but think about how people become obsessive, uh, particularly creatives in the modern day world about their social media metrics. And so they end up spending all this time optimizing for metrics as opposed to creating something decent or something yeah. worth consuming. Yes. And that's an epic cell phone, isn't it? I mean, it's just aw awful because you're, because none of this stuff matters. Right? None yeah. of this stuff matters. Um, and normally this sort of, um, you know, defamation of the character to fit the metric is something that gets imposed on us. Like it happens in organizations and hierarchies where there are targets. The idea that we, we now start to do it to ourselves in order to jump through these social media hoops is extremely depressing. But it, yeah, it's a very natural thing. I mean, I'm a numbers guy. I like the numbers. Uh, numbers are, as I point out in my latest book, The Data Detective, they're like radar. They show us what's going on in the world. They're incredibly powerful. Um, but you've got to understand that they're limited. And numbers tend to be at their most dysfunctional when they're being used by one person to try to control the actions of another person. So like bonuses and incentive pay in a hierarchy. It tends to get really, really dumb really quickly. So just to, to pick a, an example, the... Um, U.S. News and World Report ratings of colleges, very, very influential in terms of how colleges are viewed. One of the ways to do well in those rankings is to be highly selective. Well, okay, and you know what? That's measuring, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah lots of people want to how go many to people Harvard, they reject. So it's, yeah, so it's it's highly selective, but you can't measure uh, that directly. So then, you, well, how do you measure it indirectly? Well, you measure it indirectly by like how many people get turned down. Mm -hmm. Well, that, it turns out, is not very difficult to... Uh, you want to turn down lots of people, you just have to persuade lots of people to apply. So then the next <laughs> thing you do is you have this big <laughs> recruitment drive and you make it super easy to apply or just sort of upload your resume, whatever, just click a button and we'll, we, we'll automate the whole process. We'll make it so easy. You can apply, we can reject you. Everyone's a winner um, because our, our selectivity rate, our exclusivity metrics just went through the roof. Um, and you can describe that and you can see, oh yeah, of course that's what would happen. But it's, it's not so obvious when you first set the target because you know, how many people you turn down is a really good measure of how desirable, how exclusive you are as a place, right up to the point at which anything actually rests on that metric. The moment you put any, any pressure to bear on the metric, it will immediately buckle. Um, and, and this is a, a fact about the world that 
uh, has been, it, it's got, got various names. So it's by psychologists and sociologists, it's called Campbell's Law. Uh, economists call it Goodhart's Law. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's a, it seems to be a fundamental truth about the universe, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember seeing there was a documentary about the college admission scandal here in the U.S. And one of the people on it was a former admissions uh, officer for Stanford. And he literally said, he said, this is all just a manufactured perception because of exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, so probably two of my favorite things you said towards the end of the book, because I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but you, you know, in the chapter on life, you say, you know, real creativity, excitement, and humanity lies in the messy parts of life, not the tidy ones. And an appreciation of the virtues of mess and fulfilling our human potential is something we can encourage in our children from an early age, if we dare, when we overprotect our children, denying them the opportunity to practice their own skills, learn to make wise and foolish choices, experience pain and loss, and generally all might make an almighty mess, we believe we're treating them with love, but we also may be limiting their scope to become fully human. Uh, so as you know, the person who was raised by two Indian parents who were not overprotective, but they definitely had their boundaries in terms of what we could do and get away with. For example, my mother refused to buy me a skateboard as a kid because she said that kids who skateboard break bones, and now I'm an avid surfer and snowboarder. And I got a skateboard when I was staying at my parents' house at 36 years old. And I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because you know what? Kids who skateboard may make bro break bones. Adults who skateboard break bones and those bones don't heal. Yeah. It's, but, but as a parent, I understand you don't want anything to happen to your kids. Not physically, not psychologically. You, you want to be able to protect them. And, and of course, kids are... Uh, I mean, kids are amazing, imaginative learning machines. You know, all of this stuff is that's all true. But they're also let's let's be frank, they can be pretty dumb and make lots of bad choices because uh, they haven't learned. And it's so tempting as an adult to to step in and prevent them from the consequences of their choices, to keep them away from all risk, um, and. I'm not saying I resist that temptation with my own children, um, but I, I, I try to resist it uh, and give them that freedom to to experiment and to fail. Uh, I, I think I'm probably way short of where I should be in terms of how much I let them screw up, but um, but I'm trying because I think in the end that's. I mean, we know intellectually, we know that's where the growth comes from that's where the learning comes from um but it's just so hard to let go yeah wow um well i feel like i could talk to you for two or three hours about all this stuff uh i have one final question for you which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable it's such a good question do I have a good answer? There is, um, I guess the whole, the nature of the answer is that there's no, the nature of the question is there is in fact no answer to it because mm. uh, everybody who is unique, I mean, unmistakable effectively means unique in a way that you can identify as opposed to unique in a way that you can't. And anybody who is identifiably unique is going to be unique in their own particular way. 
so what makes a Philip Glass opera sound so distinctively like a Philip Glass opera is not anything like, you know, what makes, uh, I don't know, Gary Gygax, the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons, sort of distinctive as the creator of Dungeons and Dragons. There's no similarity whatsoever, and that is the point. So I guess my Zen answer is the, the, the question denies its own answer. Oof, that has to be probably the most interesting answer I've heard to date in a thousand interviews. <laughs> well, interesting. May not, maybe not insightful, but I'll settle for interesting. It is to me. I, I think it's a brilliant answer, personally. Like, I, you know, I love that answer. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your books, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, well thank you i've really enjoyed the conversation as well uh, it's always fun just talking about yourself uh, my website is timharford.com um not not tim hartford timharford.com just always got to spell it correctly um i'm on twitter as tim harford uh but on timharford.com there's links to all my books my most recent book is the data detective there's links to my Cautionary Tales podcast, my Financial Times column, the whole thing. It's all there. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.